Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. We're back to normal this week after two recent special episodes, one based on listener questions, which we're bound to repeat later in the year, and the other one on our predictions for 2024 in France. Just a reminder that both are still available and well worth a listen. But for this week, there's a lot to talk about once again in France, not least the new government, the new prime minister and the old president. Well, he's not too old, actually. He's still only 46. We'll look at what it all means for the next three years of Emmanuel Macron's presidency and what we can expect him to do. We'll also find out where France's most expensive autoroutes are, explore the part of the country the French dream of moving to, and also explain the key differences between public and private schools in France. And stay with us to the end to find out whether it's really okay to ask for a doggy bag in a French restaurant. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and back with me, as always, are the three talking heads of Talking France, Emma Pearson, Jen Mansfield, and John Litchfield. And just a heads up, regular listeners will notice me doing something slightly different this week because we have a sponsor for the podcast. Hello, Jen, Emma and John. Good to have you back with us again. We are well and truly into the new year now and quite a bit has happened since last week, actually. France has a new prime minister. It's youngest ever in the 34-year-old Gabriel Attal, as well as a new government. It's still got the same president, however, in Emmanuel Macron, and he held court in the Elysee Palace on Tuesday night for what was described as an XL press conference with 200 journalists. It lasted two and a half hours. But did he announce anything of note, Emma? Yeah, it was long, wasn't it? It didn't finish till 20 to 11. That's well past my bedtime. Honestly, that's quite restrained for Macron, who once debated a group of French academics for more than eight hours. He loves it, finished doesn't at he? 2am. He does. You could tell at the end he really wanted he to carry like, on going. He was leaning back, wasn't he? You know, very, very... Yeah, he always reminds me of the court. like the sort of the lycée debating champion mm. who just like wants to carry on. But the rest of us were just like, we're ready for bed, man. Be quiet. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, yes, he did announce some things. It was mostly a sort of Q and A session, so the topics were quite varied, and quite a lot of it, in all honesty, was Macron just kind of justifying his own policies or reiterating things that the government has done. But there were a few new announcements. The pilot scheme for uniforms in French schools, which had previously been announced, will be held in 100 schools. And if it's successful, uniforms could become compulsory across the country by 2026. Macron also reiterated that the teaching of civics lessons in schools will be expanded, something that he hopes will quell social unrest by giving children a real connection with their country. And he also said he wants to make drama compulsory in French secondary schools, saying that it creates confidence, teaches public speaking and contact with great texts. And, you know, obviously Macron himself got quite a lot out of his drama lessons at school. What are you referring to there, Emma? <laughs> well, famously, <laughs> I think <you> should explain. <laughs> famously, Macron met his wife Brigitte when he was at school, and she was his drama she was teacher. Drama teacher, right? Um, but on a more serious note, apparently, she has been credited with sort of polishing his speaking style at the beginning of his political career, and you know, giving him mm. uh, a bit of uh, a bit of polish. And he's a very fluid public speaker now, so maybe that's all down to Brigitte. 
Yeah. Anyway, moving on from the scurrilous details, um, he also announced that in an attempt to boost France's declining birth rate, there will be expanded parental leave and also a national strategy to tackle infertility, although he didn't give any details on what that might involve. Mm, let's bring in our French politics expert, John Litchfield, now. John, you watched Macron's mammoth press conference on Tuesday night. What did you make of it all? Well, it's an extraordinary thing. I, I mean, I'm always impressed by Macron's just intellectual ability to to command all those disparate dossiers and have responses on everything, seem to have at his fingertips detail on everything from education policy to climate change. There are very few politicians in the world, I think, that could have performed as he did last night. Whether that's successful in changing the minds of French people about him is another question, because they've seen him do it before and it doesn't seem to impress them. Also, the fact that it was in prime time, you know, uh, he chose to have it when people are normally watching their favourite serials or, or, or movies, and five or six TV channels took it, which had a touch of Vladimir Putin about it, or a touch of the old French government's control of the media about it. So, you know, in a sense, you can say it was an act of a definite choice on his part to try and create a sort of impact on the French population, also maybe an act of desperation looking at Le Pen's uh, position in the opinion polls. Thanks, John, and we'll be back with you shortly. So as we mentioned, there is also a new government. Emma, just bring us up to date on what's been happening in the positions of power in France. Well, the new government really, it looks quite a lot like the old government. I always think that new government sounds more dramatic than it really is. This is basically what in the UK we would call a reshuffle. It's de Macron moving his ministers around, bringing in a few new faces to try and give his administration a fresh start. But the big news is that, yes, France has a new prime minister, uh, Gabriel Attal. He made global headlines, actually, because he's France's youngest ever PM. He's just 34, and I think he looks even younger than that, to be honest. And he's also the country's first out gay prime minister. He's not a newcomer on the political scene, though. If you've been following French politics, you will probably know his name. He's been the government spokesman. He's been the public accounts minister and the education minister. And he's kind of long been regarded as the rising star of the Macronie, which is something obviously confirmed by his appointment as prime minister. And he's also pretty popular for a politician. Polling at the start of 2024 found that he was the most popular government minister. And the beer test at the end of last year found that he is the third most popular politician for people to go out and have a beer with. So I imagine Macron is hoping that some of this popularity will rub off on him. We'll go back to John now. John, why did Emmanuel Macron choose the 34-year-old Gabriel Attal? Well, it's, I think it's all a part of the same realisation that something has to be done, which you know was behind the press conference on Tuesday night as well. Up till now, I think Macron's taken the view that France has to be reformed against its own will, if necessary, that France will always drag its heels against changes that are in the end in its own good. But therefore, he, the powerful, intelligent, far-seeing Macron, will impose reforms, however unpopular, in the short term. Well, the short term is now seven years, and there are only three years to go before his time is ended, and Le Pen is, is flying high in the polls, not just for the European elections in June, but also in, for 2027. So he's he's basically, I think, done a sort of handbrake skid or, or turn. And instead of having a sort of prime minister who crunches through, forms through parliament, he's gone for a, a very, very brilliant political prime minister. And if you saw Atal's performance, his first performance at Prime Minister's Questions time the other day, it was really quite wow, the way he was able to take on all the different oppositions. He is an extraordinarily talented politician, Atal, for all his youth. 
So the idea, I think, is that Tal's going to be a kind of spin doctor rather than a prime minister. He's going to try and convince the French people that actually well, things are going well and actually we've been doing more than you think. And actually we're now going to do more things than you think, which will be lots of little reforms like Macron announced last night, rather than set piece battles in parliament when, when you don't have a parliamentary majority, they're going to try and do as much as they possibly can within the present law, essentially, by the kinds of things that Atal did when he was education minister, didn't need a change in law, like banning Islamic robes or attacking bullying in schools. All of that was done within present law. There will be some uh, new laws proposed, obviously, nothing as dramatic as the pension reform was the immigration reform. So, you know, I think he's been put there to do something quite different. And in a sense, he's been put there to sort of distract from and, and take some of the light away from Macron, which is a change in, in Macron's approach to government as well. Thanks, John. So what about the rest of the government, Emma? Was it much of a reshuffle? Well, a lot of the big name ministers have stayed in post. Uh, Bruno Le Maire is the finance minister, Gerard Darmanin is the interior minister, and some of the others have basically just swapped jobs or had a slightly renamed ministry. There were a couple of new names, though. The former MEP, Stéphane Sejourné, he becomes foreign minister. He's actually the former partner of Gabriel Attal, but perhaps more importantly, he's a longtime ally of Macron. He was one of the first Macronists and he helped him set up the party back in 2016. But the big surprise uh, really was the appointment of Rashida Dati as the culture minister. Dati is actually a member of the right-wing Les Républicains party and she was justice minister under Nicolas Sarkozy. So she's a bit of a surprising choice. She was a, a slightly controversial appointment because she's quite socially conservative, especially on LGBTQ issues. And she's also under investigation for possible corruption linked to lobbying, which dates back to the time when she was an MEP. She's currently the mayor of Paris's seventh arrondissement. She unsuccessfully challenged Anne Hidalgo as mayor of Paris in the 2020 elections, and she's now confirmed that she intends to try again in 2026. The two of them clearly hate each other. Reacting to Dati's new role as culture minister, Hidalgo said, I wish good luck to everyone involved in the culture sector in the ordeals they are about to go through. So clearly no love lost there. Let's get a final question to John. John, critics have said Macron's new government is clearly a move to the right whilst many ministers are from the centre-right. Does this really reflect a move to the right over the next three years of his presidency, John? You know, it, there has been a somewhat right-wing drift since 2017, I think, but essentially the, the core right-wing ministers, if you like, um, Gérard Darmanin at Interior Ministry and uh, Bruno Le Maire at Finance Ministry have been there almost from the beginning, uh, Le Maire from the beginning. Uh, so that's there's not going to be a big change there. Bringing in uh, Rashida Dati at Culture, I think is part, not so much as a right-wing change, as part of what Macron was talking about in the press conference about trying to sort of convince French people that opportunity is for them, ordinary French people, that it isn't just for the elites. Uh, that's not necessarily a right-wing policy. Maybe on social policy, uh, Catherine Vautrin has come in, who's from the right, will, will take a more right-wing view, but that's essentially Macron's own view of what he's been pushing since the beginning anyway. I don't see this government or what Macron's doing as it, it doesn't help to understand it as a move to the right. I think it's a shift to what I'm going to say in my column this week as a shift towards an attempt at populist centrism, you know, trying and selling what he's been doing in a more effective way to people rather than changing it radically. Crisscrossing France are the country's autoroutes or motorways or highways. And if you're driving on these, you will need to pay a toll or payage. 
And next month, these toll charges are increasing again. Emma, where are prices going up? Well, there are two tunnel tolls that are increasing by a bit more, 3.23% and 8.87% respectively. And that's the Mont Blanc Tunnel and the Fréjus Tunnel, which is in southeast France. Other than that, though, the price hikes will be capped at 3%. Now, French auto routes are run by private companies and they decide on the price rises within the cap set by the government. So the prices do vary quite a lot depending on which road you're driving on. I got a shock last summer when I drove through the Fraser's Tunnel and I went to pay the toll. Do you know how much it was? No. Have a guess. To go through the tunnel? Uh, six euro? 50 euros. 50 euro? Do you know how much the Mont Blanc Tunnel costs to go through in a car? Uh, no. 54 euros. In all fairness, those are like massively complicated massive, engineering projects. They tunnels. need, a, it went yeah, on they for need ages, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of maintenance. But I was shocked. Like if I'd known, I probably would have drove around. It would have taken me three days. But um, <laughs> drove, <laughs> driven over the top petrol. of Mont Blanc. That yeah. sounds... I was like, wow. So yeah, they are steep charges. They're going up again. What about autoroutes? Do we know which one is the most expensive in France? Yes, it will not surprise you to hear that it is in the Paris region, as everything is expensive mm. here. Uh, this is the A14, uh, which connects the Paris business district of La Défense to the town of Orgeval, which is to the west of Paris. For the privilege of travelling just 21 kilometres, motorists forked out €10 Euro per trip. In, uh, in 2023. Mm. Another expensive one is the A75 around Milau in southwest France. That's 10.42 per 10 kilometres, but it includes driving across the Milau viaduct, which is really, really beautiful. It's a stunning route to drive, worth the money, in my opinion. And the third most expensive is the A355, which goes to Strasbourg. Interesting. Um, Jen, Emma, are you guys expert on motorways? I'm definitely not. I've rented a car in France like three times. Right. So, Well, it's a good job because I am actually an expert on French motorways. So I've, you like to tell us. <laughs> I've, I've got a little quiz for you if you want. You know, French motorways, most of them actually uh, have nicknames, right? Based on, you know, yeah. whatever kind of motorway they are. I'm going to give you a quiz now, see if you can guess what these nicknames are. Uh, do you know which, which motorway is called Le Méridien? You've actually mentioned it. No. Uh... No. It's actually the A75, the one with the oh. Milau viaduct, yeah. Um, it's a stunning motorway, as you mentioned, but it's called the Meridien, I think, because it runs parallel with the Greenwich Meridian, actually. Basically, it runs through the centre of the country. Do you know which one is called the Autoroute des Anglais? Well, that must be going to Calais, surely. That's the, the route up to, it, up to Calais does, and yeah. then crossing thought, to England. I thought it would be the A1, but uh, it's the A26, that, which runs between Troyes uh, to the east of Paris and Calais, basically nicknamed the Autoroute des Anglais or the motorway of the English because it's known as kind of one of the most direct routes to avoid Paris to get up to Calais without going through Paris. And why do you go to Calais? Uh, to go back to England. Uh, to go to the wine warehouses to fill up uh, your car with as much cheap booze as possible right. and then go to and England. And then just go back to France. <laughs> back to mainland, yeah. What about the Autoroute du Soleil? Come oh, that, on, this is easy, I know Jen. this one. That's the one going from Paris to Marseille and people take it when they go on holiday. Yeah, do you know what number it is? Uh, it's the A6. A6, A6 Jen, yeah. <laughs> South of Paris, heading to the sun. Finally, Autoroute des Titans. I like this one. Titans? The, the, oh. the motorway of the Titans. This one's in the mountains, right? It is the A40, right, which earned this nickname for its highly technical and large-scale building projects. It's composed of 12 viaducts, three tunnels, and it crosses the Jura mountain range, and it basically connects France with Italy between the cities of Macon, I think I pronounced that right, and Milan. But uh, we have an article to all our listeners who really want to know the nicknames of French motorways. We have a great article on our site which lists them all. Now, as I mentioned, we have a sponsor for our podcast this week. If you're British and living in France, you will know that banking is not as straightforward as in Britain. Depending on your situation, there may be special banking or administrative requirements. Often it can be confusing. 
Whether managing a move to live and work in France, purchasing a holiday home or retiring, Britline can help. Founded in 1999 as part of Credit Agricole Normandie, Britline's advisors can help you establish a new life in France, all in simple, plain English. To find out more, head to Britline.com. On we go. One name who has dominated the news in France over the last few days is Amélie Oudéa Castera, or AOC, as she is sometimes referred to here. She's France's new education minister. She's also the sports minister and also the minister for the 2024 Paris Olympics. She's got a lot on her plate. She's been at the centre of a huge political storm over the fact she sent her kids to a private school rather than the local public school. Now, she's not the first education minister who's been called out for sending their children to private schools. So why has this been getting so much attention, Jen? Well, it mostly has to do with her response to the question of why she sent her kids to private Catholic school. But it also has to do with the fact that the school itself has been investigated for homophobia and sexism. So when she was questioned about her choice, she responded, at one point, we got fed up, like hundreds of thousands of families who choose to look for a different solution. She discussed feeling frustrated with her eldest son's school and felt that he had a lot of quote-unquote unfilled time, which was basically a reference to the amount of time when the teacher was off and not replaced. So basically, she was just frustrated that her son's teacher was out of the classroom quite a lot and there was no adequate replacement. And to be fair, the school has denied this allegation so far. As you might expect, though, public school teachers and unions have not responded well to her comments, but they do speak to an interesting phenomenon in France. There really are a lot of families who send their kids to private schools here. In fact, over 2 million students attend private schools, meaning over 17% of the overall school enrollment in France is in private schools. Mm, Okay, so when you think about France and the French education system, we tend to think about state schools, but hundreds of thousands of children in the country are educated privately. Why so many, Jen? Can you explain a little bit about how private schools work in France? So basically, a lot of private schools in France are actually quite affordable, uh, especially compared to what Brits and Americans might think of when considering private school fees. Basically, there are two different types of private schools in France. There are sous-contrat and hors-contrat. The sous-contrat schools, uh, there are more of them than the hors-contrat schools, and they actually do receive a decent amount of state funding. Uh, So, for example, teacher salaries are paid for by the Ministry of Education. But these schools are required to follow the state-based curriculum, meaning kids are taught so they can pass state exams like the brevet or the baccalaureate. A lot of these schools, actually 96% of them, are technically Catholic, and they are allowed to publicly display a religious affiliation as long as that does not constitute an act of quote-unquote pressure or undermining freedom of conscience. What does this mean for the curriculum then? For example, can they avoid teaching sexual education, for example? So the schools that receive state funding, the sous-contrat, they are required to follow the state curriculum. So that does include sexual education courses for kids in secondary school. uh, And they can actually lose their funding if they fail to do so. There was a recent case in northern France where the département authorities announced that they would stop funding a private Muslim secondary school, the Averroes School. The French Daily Le Parisien reported that inspectors had found the teaching was lacking on societal content such as LGBTQ topics and that there was an excessive emphasis on Islam Uh, in courses on religion to the detriment of other faiths. Now, this feeds into part of the criticism uh, that's been leveled against the current education minister, which is that the Catholic school that she sent her kids to, which I should mention is sous-contrat, meaning they get government funding, uh, has been investigated for homophobia and sexism. Okay, you mentioned that the fees at these private schools are affordable for many families, not everyone, of course. What can families expect to pay for a sous-contrat private school in France? So these tuition fees tend to be a bit lower just because of that state funding, but 
But again, like you mentioned, not not everyone can afford them. The most recent numbers I could find were from 2018. So they've likely gone up a little bit since then due to inflation. But at the time, the average price for a year of school for maternelle, that's nursery in a sous contrat private school in France, was 389 euro a year. Then it went up to 390 for a primary school, 763 for a collège or the first few years of secondary school. And 1,176 for a lycée pupil. That's the oldest level of secondary school. And then schools in Paris are a bit pricier. So, for example, the École Stanislas, that's the school where the education minister sent her kids, they charge 2,022 euro a year for primary school and 2,561 euro a year for lycée high school. Mm, interesting. Now, you mentioned there was another type of private school in France, Jen. Yes, there is the au contrat, and that's basically the outside of contract schools. They don't get funding from the state, French state. So their fees are usually a bit more expensive, but that also means that they're not required to follow the public school curriculum. That being said, a lot of these schools do make an effort to prepare kids for the back and for other state examinations. But the or contra schools that you would probably be most familiar with are the international schools in big cities. Usually these offer a totally different curriculum from the French schools. So kids can be prepared to get, for example, a U.S. high school diploma or perhaps to pass their British A-levels. The American school in Paris, for example, charges 38,560 euro a year for their older pupils. And the British School of Paris charges 31,498 euro a year for the A-level students. So quite a bit more than the averages for the sous-contrat schools. The main requirement for these schools is that the principal and the teachers have the necessary qualifications to carry out their duties. And the school is also required to ensure that students are taught from a quote-unquote common skills base. So that would be things like literacy and math. They're also required to stay within the laws of the land. So they're not allowed to incite racial hatred, for example. But other than that, they can run their own curriculum. Mm, Really interesting explanation. Thanks, Jen. Let's bring back John Litchfield. John, we've been discussing this row around private schools and how they work in France. Macron said this week there was no conflict between private and public schools in France. Is that really the case, John? Well, I think it's important, and I think some of the foreign commentary on this fails to make the point that private schools in France are not like public schools, as it were. Terminology becomes complicated, obviously, in Britain or in in the US if it comes to that. But it doesn't cost a huge amount to send your children to a private school in France. It costs a little bit. And if you're not very well off, then you you prefer not to have to do it. And the reason why the fees are relatively low is because the teacher's salaries are paid by the state. And in return, nearly all private schools, there are some completely private ones which are out of this debate, really, which cost a lot more. But nearly all private schools teach the same curriculum and uh, follow the same courses as the state schools. Essentially, they are just like state schools, except because you pay a bit more into them, they're able to offer a little more uh, extracurricular activities. And crucially, they're able to choose their own teachers. The state school system has this kind of union-dominated bureaucracy in which teachers um, essentially are are sort of sent where they're sent. And, and, you know, it's very difficult to get rid of them once they're there. All of that has been there for a long time and, and has not been successfully much challenged by education ministers over the years. And, you know, I'm not in any way wanting to denigrate what teachers in the state system do, many of them very dedicated and very talented people. But there are plenty of cases, I think, of poor teachers remaining in office and also huge amounts of absenteeism strikes and so on in the state school system, which means that people are more and more tempted to move at relatively little cost into the private schools which exist. Because it is so little different from the state system, it costs very little more and it does offer slightly more extracurricular activities and often better teaching and better results for the kids. And so people, you know, want their kids to have their best opportunities in life. 
So in a sense, it is a false debate, the public versus private system. The left tends to hate the private schools in principle because they are essentially nearly all supposedly Catholic schools. The right defends them because, you know, many people on the right tend to send send their children to private schools. But essentially, it isn't the same opposition between state and private education you get in a country like Britain. Not the same at all. Right, moving on. Emma, Jen, if there's one part of France you'd love to move to outside Paris, where would it be? Jen, you go first. I think I would say Marseille because I really like being close to nature and the Canonker there and you can do some easy hiking and it's sunny and honestly, it's it's really nice. It's a big city. Emma? Well, I mean, before I lived in Paris, I lived in Castres in southwest France, and I would happily go back there. It's lovely. But actually, the place I have my eye on to retire to, maybe one day, is La Rochelle on the Atlantic coast. All right. We'll talk more about La Rochelle later, by coincidence. Uh, We actually have some official data that reveals which part of France is seeing the biggest increase in its population due to people moving there. Reveal all, Emma, please. Yeah, we got some lovely new data from INSEE, the French National Statistics Agency. Fabulous, aren't they? It's got graphs and charts and maps Mm. and everything. Anyway, it was about the areas in France where population levels are rising and falling. And the département that had the highest population increase due to inward migration, people moving there basically, was Charente-Maritime in the southwest of the country. And that is perhaps not a surprise because separately a poll of French people of the town that they dream of moving to one day was topped by Charente-Maritime's biggest town, which is La Rochelle. So clearly I'm not very original in my retirement choice. Charente-Maritime, it's in the southwest Nouvelle-Aquitaine region. Tell us more about it, Emma, and why so many people would want to move there. Well, it has absolutely loads to recommend it. Um, it's two biggest towns, La Rochelle and Saint. They're both lively places, historic centres, good shops, decent nightlife. And in the case of La Rochelle, there's the Francofolie, which is a, a five-day-long summer festival where the bands play within the historic harbour walls. It's really cool. But outside of the towns, there's a lot of beautiful countryside. The area is part of the historic Marais Poitevin, which are um, salt marshes. These days, a lot of them are, are protected natural site with lots of unusual plants and bird life. And of course, the Departement is coast. So you've got the beach. It's got lots of lovely, long, sandy beaches adjoining the Atlantic Ocean. Great for sports, including kite surfing. And on a more practical level, the town of La Rochelle is just three hours from Paris on the TGV. And the area has decent employment opportunities and significantly lower cost of living, especially property prices, than the big cities. And in fact, relocation experts say that they're not surprised about the movement of people here. And the data shows that of the people moving to Charente-Maritime, most of them moved to the towns. And this follows quite a general trend of people leaving cities for smaller towns. Mm, That's interesting. What's so good about smaller towns in France? Well, that's another thing that comes out of the INSEE data. It shows that France is now firmly an urban country. Around two thirds of the population live in either towns or cities. But we are seeing this general trend of people leaving the cities for smaller towns. And I think it's basically because they just combine the best of both worlds. You know, the costs are much lower than in the cities, especially the cost of renting or buying a place to live, which can be very expensive if you're in a big city like Paris. It's easier to get around, but you still have all of the amenities of living in an urban area, such as shops, services, public transport, stuff to do, good bars, that kind of thing. And some 2022 data from the Association of French Real Estate Agents showed that a town with a population of 20,000 was judged to be the ideal. But interestingly, of the most popular towns with house buyers, all of them were close to big cities. So it's not like people are looking for sort of rural isolation. They want to be connected to urban life, but just a slightly smaller urban Mm. centre. Okay, so it's not just Charente-Maritime's population that is on the up, right? When it comes to France as a whole, 
Do we know more about where the population is rising and where it's actually shrinking? Um, yeah, absolutely. The, the NC data gives statistics for the whole country. You can find the full list on the local website. And there's actually a handy little widget that lets you search your postcode so you can see if your commune or your village is growing or shrinking. And basically, the places where the population is shrinking are mostly places that are already quite sparsely populated. So you've got departments like Nièvre, Cantal, Vosges, Orne, places that are often in the centre of France quite sparsely populated. The exception to that is Paris, which has been seeing a steady fall in population over the last decade, which is due in large part to increasingly crazy prices that are driving people out of the city. But in this case, actually, most people don't go far. And in fact, 60% of people who leave Paris just move out to the suburbs, which are cheaper, especially if you're looking for a family home. And then when we look at places that are growing, they're concentrated in the Paris suburbs, as I just said, along the Atlantic coast, including Charente Maritime, and the Rhone Corridor, which is in the east. The département of Gironde, which includes the city of Bordeaux, that's seen the strongest growth, along with the Paris suburb of Saint-Saint-Denis and Haute-Savoie in the Alps. Perfect. Thanks, Emma. Really interesting. Uh, none of you have asked where I want to move to if I left Paris. Where do you want to move to, Ben? Uh, there's a town called Annecy. Oh, it's beautiful. Have you heard of it? Of course we've heard of it. It's beautiful yes. and famous. I hoping it was off the beaten track. <laughs> well, it's absolutely rammed with tourists, know, but it is stunning. Its lake is stunning, so pretty. Yeah, it's stunning. It's quite expensive as well because like, lots of frontiers live there, like people who live in France and work yes, in Switzerland. Yes, work in Switzerland, you're right. Um, All right, I might have to think But it is else. beautiful. New legislation in France to tackle climate change is changing the way you let or sell properties. From next year, you will need to provide an energy performance diagnostic certificate with a rating above a G grade to potential tenants or buyers. If your property is modern, this won't be a problem. However, bringing older properties up to that energy efficient standard could be complex and costly. Luckily, there is help available. To help you plan your renovation, Britline, the French bank with British thinking, has created a handy online guide. Their tool will help you estimate your diagnostic grade, identify any grants or loans you may be eligible for and identify local tradesmen head to britline.com where in their help and resources section you will find several blogs on the subject well let's move on to an important question now that has dominated the comments section on our website it's probably something that would never even have been asked 10 years ago jen but is it okay to ask for a doggy bag in a french restaurant to take the remains of your dinner home Well, I hope it's okay because I do it all the time. (laughs) Uh, But I would say they're becoming less taboo. Uh, They're still quite a bit less common in France than they might be in the United States, though. Emma, have you ever asked for a doggy bag? No, never. I finish what's on my plate. Is there a French word for a doggy bag? (laughs) Un doggy bag. Ah, right. (laughs) Are the Académie Francaise okay with that? I don't know. (laughs) Surely they've come up with a sac de chien or something like that. (laughs) Um, Do we know why it's becoming less taboo, Jen? Well, it's just not really a long-standing tradition here to begin with. So originally, uh, like I just said, there wasn't even a French word for doggy bag. Most people just say un doggy bag. Mm. Uh, although I have heard that people are trying to get sac gourmet or sac gourmet uh, to become popular, though not sure if it's working. There are a couple reasons that you might not see doggy bags as much in France, though. It has to do with portion sizes. So in France, the portion sizes are usually smaller and they're meant to be individual, in contrast to the U.S., where portion sizes tend to be bigger or plates might be for sharing. And on top of that, the rule 
of finishing what's on your plate is a very important aspect of table manners in France. And French kids learn that from a young age. But doggy bags also have a bad reputation, do they not? I mean, people are often accused of being a penny pincher, are they, if they ask for one? Yeah, that is the traditional mindset. Uh, I looked at this 2014 study and it found that 15% of French people still felt that asking for a doggy bag makes you look stingy. Uh, Then another 11% of people said it was rude to ask for one. 5% of people called it unhygienic, and a third of people said that they were just useless. Mm. Uh, But to be honest, I've never had any issue getting a doggy bag in France, though that might be because there was a law that went into effect in 2021. Basically, it was intended to combat food waste. And so French restaurants are now required to provide for any customers that request them reusable or recyclable containers to take away uneaten food. Mm. I've definitely been offered a doggy bag or box by, you know, waiters and stuff if you haven't finished your dinner. So it does seem to be coming slightly more common or acceptable. We did a story on this for our website and quite a few of our readers commented, uh, as I mentioned before, with their own experiences getting doggy bags in France. What do they have to say, Jen? Yeah, a few readers said that they often ask for doggy bags. Uh, One reader, Joan Jenkinson, commented, never had a problem asking for or receiving a doggy bag here in Dordogne. As I get older, I can no longer eat large meals, so for me it works well. And then another reader, Rebecca Bright, said, the pandemic changed the situation enormously. Mm, Good point. Yeah. I've always asked to take away my leftovers, except in higher end places, where in any case, there's seldom anything left. But restaurants often used to jerry-rig containers out of aluminum foil or whatever. Now, almost everyone has special boxes. And then some other readers also said that they felt doggy bags were less pertinent in France just because of portion sizes, like we mentioned earlier. Jane commented, I have not taken les restes from a restaurant in France because the portion sizes are appropriate, but I wouldn't be averse to asking for a box in some situations. And Richard said, I think this is not so much an issue of manners or traditions of French restaurants as one of the outrageous portions served in American restaurants. French restaurants tend to serve sensible size portions, so there's no need to take uneaten food home. Though Michelle in Paris did say that she's had some challenges with doggy bags. She commented, let's go one step further and normalize bringing your own container to the restaurant for either a doggy bag or emporté in order to reduce plastic waste and take away container waste. I live in the 10th and have hit and miss experiences with this. Some don't even question it, while others refuse to fill my clean container because it's unhygienic. Mm, So maybe asking for a doggy bag is no longer considered a faux pas in French restaurants. Emma, Jen, have you committed any other faux pas in French restaurants? Emma, you've asked for ketchup with your oysters probably and <laughs> Jen peanut butter on your tartine anything um, actually recently uh, I think I must have gone a bit native in France because when I was on my holiday I committed a restaurant faux pas by being too French that basically we finished our dinner and then just like walk, walked up to the bar to pay and the waitress was like what are you doing sit down I'll bring you the bill and I'd sort of forgotten that outside of France people don't really do that anymore because yeah. I love the fact that in French like low like cafes not fancy yeah. places yeah. but in French places you could just go up and pay the comptoir or pay the case but it's not really so common outside France. Interesting. No, I was talking to a friend recently who said he had his parents over from England and they were in quite a posh restaurant not far from here and he said his dad wanted to order the fish but he really wanted red wine with it and he said the waiter and the chef refused to let him have red wine with his fish and he basically ended up ordering a different main course just so he could have red wine. They really just put their foot down and said, nah, you're having fish, you can't have red wine. Oh, that's oh, funny. I think that's quite old-fashioned. It is. Oh. I, th- I think that's rare, but it still happens. It was hilarious, yeah. Jen? I would say I commit a restaurant faux pas every time I eat out in France because I always ask for ketchup or hot sauce. But 
I, I tend to like combine it with a joke about, oh, haha, je suis américain. And then they laugh and they give me the ketchup. So it's fine. <laughs> Very interesting stuff. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. And thanks, John. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. I've mentioned many articles which we have on our website. I will include the links to all of them in the show notes and in our podcast article. Thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back with more next week. <laughs>